Welcome to the Perfect Puzzle. We are going to be doing a short study, uh, several lessons though, on the book of uh, Haggai, a prophet from in the Old Testament. And before we get started, uh, while you're looking for that in your Bible, uh, his name spelled H-A-G-G-A-I. It's in the Old Testament. All right, well, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much to be able to study your word, to make it freely available to us, Lord, and available for us, for our understanding and for our learning. Father, I do ask that you open everyone's hearts, minds, soul, spirit, and body to the things you have to say to them, Father. Uh, and we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Now, you may be wondering why, we're, why I'm spending so much time in these Old Testament books. I'm trying to get you prepared for a study of the book of Revelation. Because there's a lot of things going on in Revelation. You're not going to understand how God operates and why he does what he does without this background of seeing how he operated with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. So I hope you'll bear with me through these studies. I hope you'll listen to all of them because they're really important to understanding the book of Revelation. The Bible is a perfect puzzle and all the pieces fit together, but you have to look for them. Just like putting together a jigsaw puzzle, you got to look for the pieces and put them together where they fit. So we're just going to talk generally about Haggai this session before we really get into the book. Now, Haggai was the first of three prophets who belonged to the final stage of Jewish history that began with the return from the captivity in Babylon. Two of them, Haggai and Zechariah, prophesied at its commencement. Malachi followed about a hundred years later. But after Malachi, there was no prophecy. The voice of prophecy was silent for four centuries till the days of John the Baptist. Now, this is a brief book. It only has two chapters, 38 verses. It was written in prose form rather than poetic form used by so many of the other prophets. And Haggai refers to himself in the third person in this book. Now, the timing of his message and these messages that he gives is of major importance in understanding what this book has to offer us. You know, over 70 years earlier, in 586 B.C., Jerusalem was decimated by the Babylonian armies. The temple, which was built in 967 B.C. by King Solomon, was totally destroyed. And God's covenant people didn't have a place to worship for the first time since Moses built the tabernacle, which was the forerunner of Solomon's temple. Most of Judah's population was forced to go into exile some 1,100 miles away in ancient Babylon, an area that we now call Iraq. Very few escaped the effects of this invasion, and only a very small number of people were left in the land. With no leadership or the means or place to worship the living God, their resolve melted. Little, if anything, was accomplished during those years. There's no evidence that any faith remained. It was a period of stagnation for those who were left, as well as for those who were deported to Babylon and those who had fled to other foreign countries for safety. Now, in 539, Media Persia, 
under the leadership of Cyrus, captured Babylon on the very night that the drinking and dining described by the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 5 took place. The battle was sudden and complete. It happened virtually without a single shot of a bow or the thrust of a spear. Now King Belshazzar had retreated to Babylon thinking he had enough supplies. Now, he had about 20 years worth, thinking he had enough supplies to outlast any siege. But Cyrus diverted the waters of the Euphrates River, which at that time flowed under the walls and river gates of the city of Babylon, and he was able to march into the town, sloshing through the now receded water and mud of the Euphrates. Now, meanwhile, the Babylonian leadership were toasting their god Marduk and all their other gods in the vessels that were taken from the temple in Jerusalem and were singularly dedicated to the honor and glory of God's name. Now the following year, in 538 B.C., Cyrus issued a decree, and that's recorded in Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, 2 through 4, and chapter 6 in Ezra, verses 2 through 5. Now that decree made it possible for the exiles to return to their homeland. Now under the governor Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua, less than 50,000 Jews returned to Jerusalem and to Judah. That's a rather disappointingly small percentage of the exiles that were living in Babylon. Now many of, many of those Jews, they didn't want to return to Israel. They stayed on in Babylon. The Lord told him through Jeremiah that the captives should build houses and vineyards in Babylon and that the Lord would greatly increase them. And many of these Jews felt quite at home in Babylon. They moved to other cities in the Persian Empire. You can see that in the book of Esther. Now, as for those 50,000 some odd who did return, they were overwhelmed at the destruction of the city. The walls and gates were thrown down, the temple was destroyed, the city was in ruins, and the excitement of the returning exile soon diminished in the light of that reality. Now, if you read the 126th Psalm, that was an attempt to stir up their original enthusiasm. As the Persian Empire offered stability, the people who came, you know, they, who had come back, they started to rebuild their houses. You know, they made a feeble attempt to rebuild the temple, but they left that off. And over a period of 20 years, they gained a degree of prosperity. You could see that by the fact they could panel the walls inside their houses. And it's in this environment that the Lord sent Haggai to Zerubbabel, the leader of the city, and Joshua the high priest. Now, immediately upon the return of the remnant, Haggai chapter 1, verse 14, the people were united as one person. You can compare that to Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. They were united as one person in their resolve and direction. The first thing they did was build an altar to sacrifice burnt offerings in accordance with the laws of Moses. Now, here on the foundations of Solomon's altar, they offered the morning and evening sacrifice and the new moon sacrifices, and they made regular burnt offerings and freewill offerings. You can compare that. That's in Ezra chapter 3, verses 3 to 6. But more important, by the second month of the second year after their return, uh, that's Ezra 3, uh, verse 8, the former exiles began work on rebuilding the temple. 
The foundations were quickly completed for what would later be referred to as the Second Temple. And then the trouble began. It started with the elders who had seen the beauty and splendor of Solomon's temple. They literally wept when they saw how scaled down this building was compared to what had been destroyed. Meanwhile, the younger generation rejoiced. So confusing was the commotion caused by the weeping and the rejoicing, they couldn't tell which it was that people were doing, according to Ezra chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. And then came the request from Judah's enemies in Samaria. That was a polyglot mixture of peoples whom the Assyrian king had imported in order to keep the former inhabitants from uniting in a revolt against his kingdom. Now, th these Samarian people from uh, Samaria offered to help the exiles build a temple, but Zerubbabel declined their offer on religious grounds. Ezra 4.3 says, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. And that led to more trouble because now those enemies began to discourage and frustrate the exiles and make them afraid. And they were, the Samaritan people were so incensed by the refusal of Zerubbabel to allow them to work on the temple, they wrote to the uh, Medo-Persian king were able to get an injunction against any further work on the house of God. So the work on the temple came to a, hot, came to a halt, and their matters rested until the second year of Darius the king, when God stirred up Haggai and Zechariah, two prophets who had been part of that first group of returning exiles. Now, for 16 years, the work on the temple sat idle, Weeds began to grow on the foundation as people gave up on the project and instead turned to the construction of their own houses. Now, as I said before, there were three prophets to the people that returned from Babylonian captivity. They were Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now, Haggai is mentioned in Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and Ezra chapter 6, verse 14 as one of the two prophets who encouraged the remnant that had returned from Babylonian captivity to rebuild the temple in spite of the difficulties that beset them on every hand. Now Haggai begins his book by saying, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month. Hastapes, Hastaspes, that Darius mentioned here, he began to reign in 521 B.C., now that made the second year of his reign about 520 B.C. So the second year of Darius that Haggai mentions enable us to pinpoint when Haggai lived. Now it's interesting to note that post-captivity prophets date their prophecies according to the reign of Gentile rulers. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now those prophets who prophesied before the captivity always tied the dates of their writings to the reign of either a king of Israel, or a king of Judah, or both. After the captivity, <clears throat> there was no king in either the northern or the southern kingdom. So Haggai dates his prophecy according to a Gentile king. Now if you flip over to Luke chapter 21 verse 24, Jesus said, Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now, in Haggai's day, the times of the Gentiles had already begun. 
It began with the captivity of Judah under Nebuchadnezzar. And Jerusalem was under Gentile domination until the Six-Day War in June of 1967. And Haggai dates his prophecy accordingly, according to the Gentile king. Now Haggai constantly refers to the word of the Lord as the supreme authority. He willingly humbled himself that the Lord might be exalted. His message was practical, and his message was simple. And it's as factual as 2 plus 2 equals 4. Now the prophecy of Haggai and the letter of James in the New Testament, they have a lot in common. Both put the emphasis upon the daily grind. You see, action is spiritual. A do-nothing attitude is wicked. And both place this yardstick down upon life. Work is the measure of life. Now Haggai's contemporary, Zechariah, was visionary. He had his head in the clouds. But pragmatic, pragmatic Haggai had both feet on the ground. So the man of, the action, man of action and the dreamer need to walk together. 1 Corinthians 15.58 can appropriately be written over this book. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, forasmuch as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now Haggai was a prophet with one mission, to stir the post-exilic Jewish community to action in rebuilding Jerusalem Temple, which had been sacked and plundered by the Babylonians. And beyond this, his speeches were designed to awake the residents of Jerusalem to the responsibilities, obligations, privileges, and promises of their covenant heritage. The prophet's appeal for the reconstruction of the temple building should not be construed as a contradiction of Jeremiah's warning in Jeremiah 7.4 about misplaced trust in a sacred building. Rather, Haggai is underscoring the importance of worship in the life of the Hebrew community and the need for a sanctuary so that the worship of Yahweh could take place properly, according to the law of Moses. Now, he assumed that the appropriate attitudes of reverence, humility, and unfeigned behavior in obedience to the commandments of God would naturally accompany the worship conducted in the restored temple. You should note the prophet's charge to the community to reflect upon their ways. Chapter 1, verse 5. Also in, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 5, verse 7, and chapter 2, verse 15. And the response of obedience and worship on the part of the people in chapter 1, verse 12. Haggai also emphasizes the abiding presence of God's Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 13, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. That's a theme that's shared with the book of Zechariah. You can compare Zechariah 1.16, Zechariah 4.6, and Zechariah 7.12. Now this pronouncement so sparked the enthusiasm of the leadership and the people, they began the work of rebuilding the temple in chapter 1, verse 14. Now it's possible Haggai intended his message concerning this restored presence of God in the post-exilic community of Judah as a fulfillment of Ezekiel's early promise that God would again make his home among his people. That's Ezekiel 37, verses 
Now the book also presents two additional themes that are less developed. The theme of divine blessing of prosperity bestowed upon the post-exilic Hebrew community, chapter 2, verses 7 and 9 and verse 19, and the overthrow of the nations in chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. Both connect the message of Haggai with the larger eschatological themes of Old Testament prophetic, prophetic literature. God's promise of blessing to Israel and God's threat of judgment upon the nations. According to Ezra, post-exilic Judah did realize a partial fulfillment of God's blessing as a result of the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah. That's Ezra chapter 6 verse 14. Now the two chapters in, this, in his book contain three separate messages that were given by Haggai. Now the date formula in chapter 1 verse 1 serves to root the speeches of Haggai in a specific historical context. It's the early years of the Persian Empire which reigned from 539 to 330 BC. The speeches of Haggai are dated precisely to the day month and year of Darius the first king of Persia Persia who ruled Persia from 522 to 486 BC in chapter 1 we're going to see the message he gave on August the 29th 520 BC in the first nine verses of chapter 2 we will see the message he gave on October 17th 520 BC in the remainder of the second cha chapter, we'll see the message he gave on December 18, 520 B.C. The August message was directed toward the people's hands. There, the word was simply, be productive. The October message is directed toward the people's hearts. There, the message is, be patient. The December message is directed to the people's heads, their minds. There, the message is, be prosperous. Now, there are two key verses in this book. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, says the Lord. The second verse is, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Those two key verses are Haggai chapter 1 verse 8 and Haggai chapter 1 verse 14. Next time, we're going to jump into chapter 1, and I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are too. Until then, this is the perfect puzzle.